Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, I want to talk about teacher evaluations. The Bridge.com recently had an article talking about how after about a decade of having a teacher evaluation systems in Michigan, it's basically a giant failure. 99% of all teachers in Michigan are rated effective, and yet student test scores are down. And so today, we have a very special guest. We've got Dr. Amanda McKay longtime administrator in public schools, also an education consultant with the Creative Design Education Group. She's just going to be here to help bring her perspective to some of these conversations, some of these concepts from the article. But to start, I just want to give the best paragraph I read. Michigan was part of a wave of states that implemented teacher accountability measures based on the studies that showed students learned more when they were in classrooms with highly effective teachers. Before the reforms, determining which teachers were superstars was nearly impossible because virtually all teachers were rated as effective. Having a four-category rating system was seen as a way to allow schools and families to distinguish the great teachers from the average ones. It was seen as a potential reform that could make a big difference and improve equitable outcomes. It was bipartisan and had broad support from the education advocacy community. A December Brown University study, though, found the reform didn't work, either in Michigan or most other states that implemented similar laws. That study found that while there were exceptions, on average, teacher evaluations tied student test scores did not increase learning. And so, Don, Amanda, just curious about your thoughts. What did you guys think about this article? Well, the article rang true for me in that I've been evaluated for 23 years now as a teacher. I don't think many of those evaluations were all that accurate or all that deep in their evaluation of my skills. Um, I don't think uh, teacher evaluation has been tied very well to test scores at the secondary level. Although at the elementary level, I think this does work really well. It puts a tremendous amount of pressure on teachers, but it also does shed light on who's doing a good job where the stakes are higher in my mind at the elementary level. If you kind of take a look at just approaching educators as being evaluated in general, that whole concept really kind of makes it seem like at the level of professionalism that an educator is after years of school and experience, that they're being evaluated on student growth and a measure put in by the state, just really seems like a program that was bound to fail. It's not very connected to a short-term goal that teachers can see happen away. It also is an external measure and there isn't a whole lot of research to support that putting external accountability measures on teachers improves their performance. I was just thinking as I read this article about how we evaluate or how the system kind of works and the amount of time that is put on people like you, Amanda, and other administrators is that, you know, for me to be evaluated, I have to have a pre-meeting to tell my administrator what it is we're going to do, what it is they're going to see. The administrator then has to come and spend an hour in my classroom watching me, and then we're going to have a post-meeting. And then throughout the year, the administrator's got to come through my classroom a couple of times. And then there's a ton of paperwork that goes back and forth. And all of that is fine, but I was just thinking about the hours and hours that get spent just on me for this evaluation. And the article a couple of times talks about just sort of hoop jumping. Eventually, it's just lots of paperwork we're kind of all filling out back and forth. And is the experience actually meaningful? And I was just curious if you could shed any light on your own experiences. How many hours or what percentage of your day or week are you spending evaluating when meanwhile, the emails of the current day issues are popping up, student behavior, or all of a sudden you've got staff members sick and you're trying to fill classrooms. Can you shed any light on that? Yeah, I guess I could start with the story of being an administrator before this law went into place. So I started in 2006 and evaluation was much more based on what teachers' needs were. They would talk to me about their goals and um, I would still come into their classrooms, but it was much more to see something that they were working on and give real, you know, in-time feedback, just a thought partner with them instead of, you know, filling out, as you said, hours worth of paperwork and being, you know, forced to go in and use a certain tool to evaluate and look for certain criteria with the teacher. The law goes into place and then we all have to learn about the law. We all have to learn about the metric of the student growth and, and try and put that into place. And I guess a lot of time in the beginning was spent kind of you know, making sure that teachers weren't afraid. There was a whole lot of fear with this growth measure. And originally when it was rolled out, you know, the growth was supposed to increase over time. 
teachers were now being, you know, I'm, I'm effective. He's highly effective. Um, you could be laid off now based on your effectiveness rating. So the first couple of years of this law, we're really trying to make sure that teachers were comfortable with it and didn't feel like we, you know, threatened to have enough to worry about. And so then we really got into being trained ourselves as administrators on certain tools. We were only allowed to use certain um, state approved evaluation tools. We had to go through hours of training and be, you know, kind of calibrated is what they called it into the teacher evaluation system. Um, so that's, that was good for us. We had an accountability level too. And I think we should have experienced exactly what the teachers were experiencing because um, it helped us have that empathy and, and you know, be in their shoes. But you're right, it's hours worth of paperwork and now it feels a lot less authentic. So what I think a lot of administrators are doing just to try and still be decent leaders is you know, doing the hoop jumping like the article describes and then still finding a way to be a really authentic um, thought partner in helping teachers meet their goals. John, I left you uh, right as this was getting going, not that you uh, even maybe wanted me around, but I think in some of our darker humor that we had as this law was getting passed was, why would I want to share my PowerPoint or any of my resources with Don if he and I are both social studies in the same department? Ultimately, now, you know, we've got a little bit of a, of a ranking hunger games going on here among teachers, right? There is this sort of perverse logic that if we're going to rank people, why would we want to be collaborative, which of course is something that schools are, are desperately always wanting their teachers to be. To be clear, Zach left because he was transferred to a middle school because of a change in scheduling and there wasn't a job at the high school anymore and seniority ruled. Uh, Zach was by no means inferior to anybody else, but- I would um, not have ever, I, I was gonna stop sharing things with you the next year though. Yeah, well, thankfully you have shared things because I'm still working with the base roots of what you laid down. I've just been changing it over time. You're a good creator. I'm not as good a creator. Um, anyway, long story short, when this came out, I thought I took it pretty seriously. And the part that I took seriously wasn't, I didn't think I was going to lose my job because every evaluation I've ever had in 22 years of teaching is you're doing a great job. No criticism, nothing like that. Just you're doing a great job. I was like, okay, well, can you give me a little more so I can, you know, improve my craft? It's like, no, you're doing good. Like, okay, got it. Thanks. So I was always okay with like sharing and everything like that. Still am. The other thing, the one thing that was really interesting to me was it came part of this law or part of the policy in my district, I'm not sure which one, Amanda probably knows better, was that if you were highly effective for a couple of three years in a row, then you do not have to be go through the formal evaluation process and you can't be laid off. And I took that serious because I pay attention to economics. I thought there might be budget downturns. They might be laying people off. I need to be bulletproof. I have two kids. I got to provide for my family. And so I made a priority to be highly effective. And there were extra steps you could use to get highly effective, which was to document all the things you had done and so forth. So I did all those steps. And I was shocked that most of my coworkers didn't. They were fine with just being effective. They weren't concerned with this highly effective uh, rating. They weren't concerned about layoffs. They weren't concerned about sharing. Because it seems that in general, the mood was, hey, everybody, we're going to get through this. We're going to find a way for you to document your data so that you show that you're effective and everything will be okay. Which, as Amanda just explained, was the concern that I think people were freaking out. And I was not freaking out, but I was changing my behaviors in order to reach the new goal. Seems like a lot of people just freaked out or didn't even care. And that's what really surprised me. Amanda, and I wanted to ask you, certain districts seem to have a policy where they just make all their teachers effective or maybe not necessarily they make everybody effective, but they don't believe that anybody can be highly effective. I've talked to some people who believe highly effective is a place that you visit sometimes and that maybe you can have a great you know, moment or a month, but ultimately are you just effective or not? And therefore you have some places that want to rank and go higher. And as Don was saying, like looking to become bulletproof, right? Or sometimes it's just, you get to be effective. You know, has your district or places that you've worked at, how have you guys talked about effective versus highly effective? You know, our district has not ever said a teacher can't be highly effective. The problem comes at the secondary because the data that we're supposed to be using, you know, the, the MSTEP and ACT scores, whatever schools are choosing, come so late that there's really no way to that school year say, you know, the teachers, you know, are highly effective or just effective. So we always settle on effective for the data piece of it, which many times does allow teachers to be effective overall. Although we work very 
closely with a committee on teacher evaluation to make sure that we minimized the amount of student growth as much as possible in the metric that we have so that teachers could be highly effective overall. But it was a numbers game. Again, it's, you know, the jumping the hoop system. So no blanket statement that no one's highly effective um, and just, you know, figuring out the hoops that we could have teachers jump through so that they felt like Don was saying safe and secure or bulletproof is another way to say it because this outside metric really did throw people off. And I think Don's right. Some people were indifferent because these outside accounting accountability measures come and go and how closely related to their practice it is, very little. So a lot of people were indifferent, but there was also a group that was very concerned. The model that our district uses is a very popular model for teacher evaluation by Charlotte Danielson. It's a four quadrant rubric, as I mentioned in the paragraph, and it's got, I don't even know. I mean, I would say 50 or more different things that they are looking for teachers to be doing and teachers should be highly effective. And in some ways it does paint a picture of sort of what an effective teacher should be doing in the classroom, but there's almost so many things that you can't actually effectively focus in on any of the things, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, if you're a teacher, or or I'm sorry, if you're an administrator, you're coming in a classroom to watch a teacher teach and to kind of rank them, in one hour, there's no way you can actually practically look for every one of these aspects. In some ways, I almost wonder, do you think we're trying to look for too much on teachers? Do you think our expectations of what teachers can actually control and do on a daily basis is it actually possible to meet all of the demands of the rubric? Or at some point, do you just start checking off like, yeah, it's enough. They're, they're doing a good enough job. And is that how we got to the point where we're 99% effective? Yeah, I mean, in general, the way I approach things and a lot of administrator colleagues is you just focus in on what's important to the teacher. Start the year off by asking them, you know, what area of the rubric do you want to focus on this year? And then when you do your evaluations, you know, you come in and you provide feedback and you ask them for their reflective points, because you're right, you can't look at the whole rubric, it's, it's overwhelming. Teachers have to provide evidence every time they rank themselves highly effective in our system. We also use Wilson. So that's, you know, 50 some pieces of evidence that they end up attaching at the end, say highly effective in several different areas. We've really tried to approach that by narrowing down so that it doesn't feel, feel overwhelming and teachers feel like there is some sense of control and they, you know, are the ones who chose the goal area to focus on. But still, it leaves overall just a disingenuous feeling. Well, I guess my question then is, and this goes to both of you guys, is, okay, it sounds like before the law, we had 98% of teachers in Michigan who were deemed effective. Now, with the law, we increased to 99% of teachers in Michigan are effective. Is it possible that 99% of teachers in Michigan are effective at their jobs if they're, they're being evaluated by their administrators who have been trained. And therefore, is there even a problem here? Well, the problem is that, as the article illustrates, the test scores have fallen during this time period. Students are not doing much better. And there are people that are found ineffective, and they're disproportionately likely to be men of color. And that is certainly not a good thing to chase these people out of the profession either. For whatever reason, those ratings seem to occur. I don't know if it's test scores or whatnot, but it is not led to progress in students' performance. That would be the big cardinal measurement in my mind. I guess I agree with Don because in order to actually measure student growth, I think you need shorter cycles of measurement. And Don's right, the elementary school has that going great. I mean, they were, they move, they meet in grade level teams. They use data that's collected regularly they are heavily invested in making improvements in student achievement because they can see it immediately. The student is going from a level A reader to a C reader. And then if they're not making growth, they actually have strategies that are research-based that they can get right in there and do. Don's wife does this all the time. But I would say at the secondary, that's a huge problem because we don't have that type of data or feedback loop taking place. And so that's part of, I think, what can be built. And it doesn't have to be numerical. It can be an actual skill. I know that, Zach, you're interested in problem-based learning or project-based learning. It's called many different things. So could it be a rubric that we use to evaluate a project? And just in that, you know, 12-week project, the students make growth in certain skills that are more affective than, you know, numerical and measured in that really tough standardized test form. To echo what Amanda is saying is that at, at an elementary level, and you can have a teacher that's measuring kids by every other week to see where their reading levels are. 
and can directly measure through specific rubrics where they are and what their reading levels performance and their improvement is. And it works really well. And I think it's very effective, although extremely stressful for the teacher. That said, it's not an 100% positive outcome. My understanding is that if students are above the level, they get written off. I, we know a parent who met with a superintendent because he was super frustrated that his son was being ignored in the class. Well, yeah, he was reading above grade level. The teacher doesn't have time for that. They have to 100% focus on those that are not there yet. So it's not like it's a perfect measurement, but it's at least an accurate measurement with incremental details that one can see progress. For me, I'm an economics teacher. A lot of our scores and our evaluations based upon, based upon student performance at a standardized test that students take. Well, there's maybe three economics questions. And like Amanda said, the results come late. There's no real detailed way to measure it through state assessments. So it's not like it works for the elementary level. And so thus we end up with where we are now, which is skills. And certainly we can teach the test or just really target these skills we're gonna assess but overall, I don't know if testing is a great measurement in for the secondary situation. Although I know and I'm very aware that everybody in the libertarian world, the Republican world says we have to test scores are the most important thing. We can measure those, which I get, but I'm not sure it's as crystal clear as everybody assumes it is. Well, you make a really good point about the elementary experience. There's sort of this interesting bar. I'm not sure if it's a, the lowest bar we set for reading and math, what's the lowest we'll tolerate. And as you're saying, Don, once a kid kind of is over the bar, the teacher's got a lot more focus on the other kids. And it makes me wonder, though, what is that classroom experience like for all the other kids that have hopped over the bar? It seems like there's definitely... A, a reduced focus on things like social studies or science or other projects and things like that kids could be doing in elementary school as there's such a focus towards making sure we're hitting reading and math marks. And yet, I guess I'll just ask you guys, is that part of the problem with this whole system is it's basically given us like one data point that we can say maybe feels meaningful, but then what does that mean for the classroom experience for most kids? Well, their experience is they subjectively may not change at all. They may not care at all based upon the teacher's evaluation rubric and how it works. Like, yeah, we all know what it's like if you offer a kid's like, hey, is this going to count towards my grade? No. Okay. I'm not going to work very hard on it, at least at the high school level. And so it's hard to get a good accurate measurement unless it is part of the grade. Currently, what I do is assessing supply and demand performance, and it is a grade for the class. And it goes very well because students want to score well on their class and so forth. And it's all good, so it works fine. But it's not, I think, the gold standard that this law was hoping for. I've seen it in a couple different levels. So at the elementary level, we come into a school year, we give a standardized test in the fall, and then there's a standardized test in the winter. So many times teachers would get their test results and their students would already be like 97% proficient. And what we found was it was really hard to get students who were already that proficient to grow, whereas we could actually affect the growth of students who were coming in with lower percent scores and get them to grow more in these measurements on this one particular test. Same thing on sitting down and reading with a student for a Fontes and Pinnell reading assessment. We could get so much more growth um, with students coming in at lower levels and it was much harder. So I will tell you that I've seen teachers be really thoughtful about this at the elementary level and conscientious about those high-performing students and say, to their colleagues, what are you doing to challenge the students who are already at grade level? And they came up with some really cool things. One example is kind of a book club group that went on in fifth grade when they found that they had a big pocket of kids that were already at standard and need to be challenged. But it was definitely an area of quandary that I respect the heck out of teachers for because they themselves surfaced that as something that needed to be fixed. Secondary, again, I, th I do think it's tougher to kind of get down to that level of growth that's needed. Well, it's interesting you use the word some, Amanda, in that some teachers were looking to challenge those higher level kids because they felt like that was either part of their job or the right thing to do for those kids. What about the teachers that, look, those kids are good. I'm going to put all my effort into getting the, the, the bottom up. And is that part of kind of the issue that's out there is, are we still trying to figure out what it is that makes a great teacher or what is it that makes a good teacher and that you know, a great teacher, I guess, is finding a way to challenge every one of those kids. 
Or could you say it's good enough for a teacher to just make sure that everybody hits the bar because it's that bar that the teacher's job is ultimately going to be dependent upon? Yeah, I mean, this is where I wish the reputation of the profession could be improved overall. I just think that teachers are professionals. And I always compare our society's thoughts of doctors and lawyers to teachers. So doctors and lawyers, it's almost like a, a given. They don't get these external measures put on them by the government. No one's trying to measure their effectiveness and rank them. But the teaching profession, who I think is doing just as critical work, is under this type of microscope and externally kind of controlled with a measure that is not working. So I've been trying to look at this as how can we have society look at us more as professionals? Is it going to take more of an undergraduate program and we all have to come out with master's degrees? Because there certainly is a lot more schooling that goes into a doctor and a lawyer than the teaching profession. I use the word some, Zach, and I'm sorry. It's been my experience to see that teachers work tirelessly to help these students. I do think that there is a time pull in that the students who are lower performing probably get, and maybe rightfully so, more attention than the higher performing students, but I haven't seen in my experience just a complete ignore. Now, Amanda made an interesting uh, comparison, and I like this one, to doctors. But so the doctors, we don't evaluate doctors based upon the health outcomes of their patients, partially because the uh, doctors that are taking the most difficult cases have the worst outcomes. So if you are a surgeon that works only on people with end-of-life heart issues, your results are going to be awful. That doesn't mean you're a bad doctor. It just means that you're working with the most challenging patients. I think of us more like police officers, and that's a comparison I like, because we don't measure police officers by the amount of crime in the area they patrol. But that's kind of what we're doing with teachers, because we can't control what's going on around. We can't control the home life or other things or the pandemic, as the current state may be. But we're just trying to do the best of what we can. And that way, we're like police officers. And police officers aren't evaluated by how much crime is in their areas. Maybe the best police officers are in the areas with the worst crime, but there's a little less because of them. So it's hard to really measure outcomes this way. You bring up a really interesting point of, I used to go to my doctor and my doctor would say, you know, hey, you're, you're a little bit overweight. And yet I would leave and probably still go drink a sugary soda for a while, right? One thing I found interesting about this article is never once do we bring up the student part of this. And I guess, do you guys think students should be held accountable at all for, for their actions or for their ability to pass the test or how hard they worked in preparation from this? It's always based on the teacher and the teacher's job inside the classroom. But a part of me just wonders, well, what if the teacher got up? And, and, and put some effort and energy into having an anticipatory set. They, they gave the kids some practice problems. They scaffold. They, they were the guide on the side. And then they had a, a test. And then the kid ultimately failed. We always still go back to just, it's the teacher's fault. Should we ever ask, like, well, maybe this kid didn't really work at their practice problems. Maybe they didn't really take it very seriously. Maybe the kid just didn't feel very interested in doing it. And does the kid ever need to be looked at as maybe this is the reason why the test score isn't high? I think it's a partnership, Zach. And the example that you gave, you came back to your doctor and your weight was still high. Then I think it's up to your doctor to start partnering with you to say, okay, why are you still drinking soda? Why haven't you switched to bourbon or whiskey like Don? <laughs> Don recently got some medical feedback and switched from beer to bourbon or whiskey. I can't remember one, but I thought that was brilliant. So can't it just be a partnership that is ongoing and we don't have to slap a label on it? You know, it's more meaningful than that they are working together to really dig in and figure out why the student or why the patient didn't stop drinking soda and then go from there. I'm going to go the other way here. And I think Amanda probably knows this research better than me, but I remember reading somewhere that administrators aren't very good at evaluating teachers, but that students were really good. And especially at the secondary level, I think students can tell you who's a good teacher or not and have a really good idea. If you add them be part of the evaluation process, they're the ones in there all the time, not once a year like the administrator. I think they give a pretty good feedback. Well, that's, that's an interesting point is administrators, uh, a lot of them have been doing their job for a very long time. I think the job of the administrator, the job of the teacher are very distinct jobs, at least from my perspective. I think you can have good administrators who maybe were never great teachers. I also think you can have great administrators who were great teachers. I think you can have bad administrators who were great teachers. All of those things go. But Amanda, do you think at some point, if you've been out of the classroom long enough, 
you sort of lose that feel for what it is that a teacher should be doing or, or what good teaching is like. And do you think that makes it hard for an administrator maybe to be critical? Maybe they 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 put the kid gloves on a little bit because they're like, you know what, like this looks pretty tough in there and I'm going to be a little more gentle because I haven't taught in 10 years. You know, many administrators are learning alongside their teachers. So I would say that, you know, when we go into a new initiative, like putting in writing workshop, for example, the administrators are right there learning the same things as the teachers, at least in my experience in the district. And so you are coming in, like I'm going to use the term thought partner and coach quite a bit here. There is not kind of that old mentality among, among administrators to come in, lay judgment, walk away and hope it's better in several months when you come and observe again. It is much more centered on, at least in my experience, talking with the teacher about what they feel they want to improve. And in that way, I don't think as an administrator, you have to have the experience. You just have to be thoughtful enough to have reflective and supportive coaching a conversation to help that person make growth in the area they've identified. Well, and they're watching a lot of teachers. I don't know about you, Zach, but I never watch anybody else teach. When I'm not teaching, I'm using my time to prep lessons, do other things to prepare for my class. So I don't see anybody else teach ever. Whereas administrators are seeing other people teaching all the time. So maybe they're more experienced. No, and, and you might be right. I, I do think administrators have a much better macro view of, of what's going on in general throughout their building. I think some administrators do a better job than others in trying to communicate, hey, go look at this person because they're really doing a great job with, with this particular concept of teaching. And, and Don, you, you bring up a really good point of we don't have opportunities to go and watch other teachers because we're too busy teaching usually. But, you know, one of the models, and I was going to ask you about this, that I, I saw once a long time ago is, do you think a better idea? And, you know, Don, you just said, well, what about students? Maybe they should be somehow a part of this evaluation process. But what about just having a cohort of teachers that are required to go watch each other teach, then give them time to go have discussion? And my thing is, is after I've watched you teach, Don, is... I don't necessarily want to rank you on a, on a one through five system on, on how well you did, you know, uh, introducing a concept. Instead, I'd love to ask you three to five questions of why did you do this? You know, why did you start with a question instead of writing something on the board, for instance, right? Or I noticed that your handout, you know, had very few graphics and it had just all words. Or I want to ask probing questions to, to learn from you. How is it that you're seeing this same thing? And to me, as you know, you said earlier, Amanda, about growth, I, I feel like we don't have any system set up where teachers can ask each other questions, see each other on a regular basis, and then provide feedback. Because I think, as you guys know, it's the respect of your peers and the, the, the challenge of peers that I do think is the most meaningful thing teachers could be given. I know there's systems like this. I'm sure Amanda knows them better and has better naming, but I know there are systems like that. It is a very expensive process because you have to pay for subs, which are unattainable right now so for the teachers to do that. But I will say that the best evaluation I've ever done in my teaching is when I did national board certification. When I did national board certification, and then when again, when I recertified, I had to videotape lessons and type up four pages of analysis about those, those observations. And I learned a tremendous amount. My first tryout in my recertification I did this lesson, I videotaped it. I was very happy with the lesson. I was very happy with uh, the performance of the students and how everything went. Then as I was watching the video the second time, I was looking at one of the questions and it had to do with who was answering questions, who was talking to your class? Was it a balanced distribution of students? And I realized that in my 10 minute video for the first seven minutes, only boys answered questions. Mm. I didn't call on a single girl. It was just boys volunteering because they were so excited and talking about what they thought. And a girl did not talk at all. And I hung my head in sorrow and started from scratch. I threw away this good lesson. I had to design something else new, but I was forever aware of what gender or genders are answering questions in my class and who's participating and who's not. And it was just a revelation based only on evaluation I did myself. And that is the kind of thing that we need to do. The national board certification process is expensive and time consuming. In my district, I get an extra $500 a year, which about covers the cost just a touch less. But it's an incredibly involved process that is very, very effective and has changed the way I do what I do. 
I wish we all would do something like that. And I've also seen that um, we had a group of teachers at the elementary I was at who all went through the national board process together and found it very, you know, valuable. And then they had to recertify and they did it as a group so that they formed like a natural cohort in that way. And it did raise issues to their attention that they hadn't expected. What I will say about that is those teachers and Don pursued that level of excellence and looking at their practice on their own. They were self-motivated to do it. So that brings me back to whatever teacher is self-motivated to pursue, can't we just let them have that pursuit as part of, or maybe all of their effectiveness measure for a year? Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, often I always find myself, you know, a little bit discouraged that the district has its own sorts of goals and things it wants everybody to be working on. And yet there are things that maybe I'm not necessarily as interested in working on because there are other aspects of a classroom that I'd like to work on. And I would love to have a more tailored, individualized kind of program where it's, this is what I want to do, or give me a cohort of people that all want to study this particular thing. And then let's hold each other accountable. The one thing I've always thought about when peers evaluate other peers is, you know, you really can't fake them. Everybody who's a teacher kind of knows all the tricks and all the shortcuts that can be taken in a classroom. And it's really hard to kind of stand in front of them and just sort of kind of paper over maybe errors or or glaring uh, shortcomings, if you know what I'm saying. And I've seen this done um, in something called collaborative inquiry groups. We started a school year once by asking the staff what problem of practice was just on their minds constantly. We planted the seeds going into the summer um, as the summer was ending, kind of sent that exciting email saying, okay, we're going to take a look at these really interesting problems in education, problems of practice. And the staff all came in, discussed different things that they were interested in knowing more about. And, you know, we all wrote our ideas on sticky notes and grouped them and came up with what we called collaborative inquiry groups that we use at every staff meeting and professional development time throughout the course of the year. And teachers were so interested in finding out more about their area of interest. So for example, we had a group, and I think rightfully so, it's on a lot of teachers' minds, interested in social emotional learning. They explored a lot of different things, you know, different programs. They took a look at what each of them were doing in their classrooms to see what commonalities they were. And it eventually led to, you know, over the course of the year, them asking to implement something called the Positivity Project, which from that, you know, seed group, Now the positivity project is being used in every school in our district. And I think that that's just a shining example of how teachers' passion and area of interest can sustain them in studying and, you know, affecting change at a large scale in this example for an entire school district. Well, it's interesting because that's sort of, as you were saying, a grassroots thing, let teachers run with it, let them sort of prove out their model or prove out their ideas, and then maybe you adopt it that sort of way. And it kind of got me to thinking that especially when it comes to reading and math, a lot of school districts have started to adopt very pre-planned and sort of canned curriculum programs from very recognized nationally, you know, thought leaders and stuff like that in each of the fields. One of the things that made me think about though is, okay, so if you tell a teacher, this is how you're going to teach this particular subject, or these are the lesson plans for each day, and this is what you're going to do. And some teachers might appreciate having that, but I do feel like some teachers feel constrained When you go to evaluate teachers that are just sort of giving somebody else's program, if they're following the program, shouldn't they just be highly effective then because they're doing what you told them to do? (laughs) Yeah, so we do have that going on in our district. Um, And again, I hate for this to be so elementary heavy, but where it's going on the most in our district is at the elementary level because of teachers' college reading and writing workshop and everyday mathematics. And you're right, Zach, they have a lesson that they give every day. Now, where I will say the magic is happening is that teachers now use these research-based skills in a much more personalized time called conferring or in reading groups, where they really are using those expertise tools that I think only they know how to develop over time and do talk about with peers in order to help students grow. So yes, it is a canned lesson in the beginning, but then as they are conferring and using reading groups with students, it is much more personalized and that brings in a technical skill that can't be kind of taught or written and written on paper and handed to teachers. I'm sure there can be a, even a scripted lesson and two teachers could do it very, very differently, probably working to their strengths. 
it's not something I would look forward to, but it's, uh, it's not something that is probably wholly ineffective. Although when I was a first year teacher, there was a program in California. Uh, I think I can't remember something reading and something math where there was clickers. And so you'd ask the question, then click the little clicker and the kids had to talk and it was entirely scripted. I never taught it, but I heard rumblings about it and it was threatened that I would have to teach it. Oh, I avoided that. <laughs> well, and you're right, Don. Like, I mean, you can take two actors and give them the same script and you'll get two different performances, right? And one of them might be more convincing than the other. But Amanda, you use the word magic. That's something that I've really wondered about of, is it possible that what made the great teachers, so there was research obviously over a decade ago that said there are some rock star teachers that can, can move kids, motivate kids and get kids to learn better than others. You use the word, the magic happens when those teachers, you know, start conferring with kids. But I, I was listening to a podcast, the Ezra Klein show this week, and he had on science fiction author, Ted Chang. And he started talking about the difference between magic versus technology. And he just said, the magician is only a select few of people. Only select few people can do quote unquote magic. Whereas technology is something that eventually once it's figured out, it's adopted, it becomes low cost. It's something that everybody can just do. Everybody can have access to, and it makes things easier. And I started thinking about that with the teacher. Is the teacher a magician or are they just technology? From the data, the research that we've been given with this teacher effectiveness thing, it makes me wonder more and more if the teacher really is a magician, even though we want it to be technology. Teaching in your career, and you guys know this, you go through so many different things. You know, you'll be at different continuums of learning as a teacher. And then that's also happening within the political context, what's going on in your own life. So being a magician, I guess, can happen in, in some moments and is hard to quantify or standardize because there's a lot of different external factors. What I can say is I think teachers all want to help students and focus on helping them grow. So yes, some days they might show up and be able to just rock those conferences out or whatever they're working closely with students on, you know, but other days, and this is just like what happens with humans, and not, you know, just being technology standardized all the time. Other days, you might not be able to bring it at the same level. I guess that's a question we have to ask ourselves as a profession. And we've seen technology now be used. COVID had us all using technology at different levels than um, we had in the past. An advance in the use of all kinds of different things, Google Classroom and online learning management systems. So is that the type of profession we want to be, that teachers have a standard level of knowledge that they administer to students through technology, and then maybe that, that kind of magic happens at the personal level for students who need that, and do all students need that? I mean, Don, you're, you're highly effective. I would look at you as a magician, <laughs> and I don't know if we can replicate you. There's only one Don McLaughlin. There's only one guy who will jump on chairs and, and mm -hmm. use a loud voice and motivate kids in lots of different ways and be funny. I just wonder if maybe we're not honest with ourselves as a society that ultimately we know the great teachers make a difference, but is it possible we, we can't make great teachers? They're magicians. Thank you for all the kind words. You've been reading my LinkedIn bio. I think my line is still, I'm trying to trick students into putting knowledge in their unwilling brains. Um, if I could find LinkedIn, I would definitely be reading the bio. <laughs> um, I think there is an element there. I don't think it has to be the same for everybody, but in a personal engagement that makes people feel that they are, and that this is interesting and this person has poured into me. And it looks different for every person that they have, People have put the energy into them and they believe in them and therefore they're gonna, students are going to perform based upon the relationship or their perspective on their, um, with their teacher. I do my thing and I think some kids find it endearing and some kids find it incredibly frustrating. But regardless, that's who I am. I just have to be that. Uh, I think the question you're asking, is the, more, the better question is, can we get people in the profession that are engaging and dynamic? And that's the hard part is we're trying to fill classrooms with anybody at this point, literally anybody. We're running out of applicants. Every administrator I talk to is trying to find a decent applicant for a teacher just to fill the classroom, which is part of the reason why this evaluation thing's an issue, because who do you replace them with? It's really hard to find good people. And we're saying that from a 
upper income district in Northern Oakland County in a state where there's a lot of teachers turned out by the colleges, not as much as there used to be, but do we have good candidates that want to do this, that want to have this, uh, have be dynamic in this setting and be in person with humans every day for the most part, I hope forever. I mean, it's, it's a job that is not bringing in that many people. And that leads to the idea of incentives. I think we need to, if you want to get better candidates, you got to pay them more. Maybe you have to have better pay for being highly, highly effective. Maybe you need to have better starting pay or even better ending pay that'll allow people to stay in. I don't think really um, the state level is there's willingness to do that, but there probably should be. If you want to get the best people, you got to pay them the most. We know birth rates are falling. There's fewer kids coming out of college, especially much fewer men. How, how do we get them to join into this profession? That's the real question, I think. And I would agree with Don. Recently at a conference, Dr. Rice, the state superintendent, showed us the last five or six years of teacher education program enrollment in our state, and it's nearly been cut in half. So we probably are looking at a real crisis. Don, you experienced in California, though, a form of merit pay and incentivizing. And I'm wondering what your thoughts <laughs> that actually increased your performance. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was I, my first year teaching, and I was not prepared to start a teaching. I had not, my teacher education was not that great at the University of Michigan. In fact, it was pretty poor. I didn't know what I was doing. I give tremendous thanks to Steve Conklin and the other people that I worked with my first few years who took me through and taught me how to teach. But regardless, I, my first year teaching, when I probably did the worst job of my career, test scores went up at the low-income school I taught in. As a result, we were supposed to get $6,000. I was ready to spend and all my fellow teachers said, don't even think about it. The money's not coming now, maybe ever. Well, fast forward seven years when the <laughs> money finally came through and I got that money after I left the state of California, after many years have this passed, I got the money and I was very happy to have it. But it has to be, I mean, we, we all have taken psychology classes. If you want to reinforce behavior, it has to be a quick reinforcement. So you got to give people the money now to show them what they're doing. And I think teachers don't think enough about what they're doing and how much they're being paid and the alternatives, the opportunity costs. I don't think other people understand this. We, as a, as a, uh, as a, business or as a uh, sector do a poor job of advertising what's good about our job. We make a good amount of money for 182 days a year. We'll pull, go toe to toe on daily pay rate with most engineering jobs because we don't work that much and we don't have that many hours. At least I don't. The point of it is it's not a bad job. We do a terrible job advertising it. Terrible job. And the starting salary is too low. And I think that's the part that we don't do. The biggest downside in education and something I've thought about lately is that although my pay is more than doubled since I'm starting teaching, I'm doing basically the same job, which I like still. However, my cohort, the people I went to college with and grew up with, are now in charge of hundreds of people and are very important, kind of like Amanda is. But I'm just doing the same gig forever and ever. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just a weird thing. In a couple of things you said there, Don, and it makes me wonder if you did go to merit pay, just I wonder if all of a sudden 99% of teachers are receiving merit pay, right? Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if we're, I would assume, especially if there's money involved, now everybody's just making sure we get over whatever low hurdle we have. I, I would almost say, can you make the incentives align so that students and teachers are getting paid together? To, to make sure that we're meeting some sort of goal, right? I, I still feel like it's a, it's a two-sided equation and yet we only focus on one side of the equation. And but that's I guess, what they found in the research, right? That the merit pay stuff in Washington, D.C. didn't work for teachers. It didn't improve the scores. But if you pay the students, it does work. So I'm with you. Let's pay the kids. Right. I, I mean, I, I, especially when it comes to your standardized scores. I mean, when we take the M-STEP test, our biggest thing is, can we keep the kids engaged and willing to put in their best effort? Because then for the most part, they're going to do fine. But there's nothing more disheartening than when a kid starts and then two minutes later, they've just closed their computer and they're done. And you're like, uh, well, that's somebody's career that's now on the line, theoretically, right? 
Oh yeah, and I remember when it was on paper, we had a student do that. We are, if that happened, we were to call an administrator, and our administrator then Darren Abbasi would come down and have a stern conversation with the student, who would always open the book up and get started again and really do a good job this time. I mean, you can't do that with a computer. It's just submitted. It's done. It, that's the whole thing: is how do you evaluate? And I'm not sure what the good answer is. I kind of think students should evaluate administrators and their judgment. Because, but then if you're an economics person like you and I are, Zach, we should say, don't test scores do that? Don't they tell us who knows things, who is successful or who doesn't? I guess my argument is that you don't evaluate because the type of system that we're describing, merit pay doesn't work. You guys are right. There's a ton of research. And then if you turn around and pay students, you are just reinforcing that cycle of how many points is this worth? Is, if this is not worth points, I'm not doing it when you could maybe re-envision a system that did not look for that type of validation at all. You know, the fact that we're dependent on test scores to get into colleges and things like that, I get it, I understand. I do think colleges are freeing up their, admit, their admission policies, especially with COVID and looking at students coming in who led projects or have all kinds of different experiences. But if we're always looking for an external measure like a test score as an evaluative factor, I don't think our profession is gonna grow and I don't want that for the generation of kids coming up. I don't want them to think that we should always be looking or chasing that score, that grade, but our system constantly reinforces it. At the middle school level, especially, we will see students over the course of a class or over the course of a school year, we'll see a lot of students grow academically, but we see some students that grow a ton when it comes to like their emotional regulation, like they've established relationships with teachers and friends that maybe they weren't able to do at the beginning of the year. Or in my building, maybe we see it in seventh grade, the final, the growth, but it actually was in sixth grade that they were really struggling. We see growth in maturity. We see growth with behavior. And there's so many other ways that we can all point and say, you know, that kid three months ago, they were doing this. And now, hey, like this is better. And yet we don't measure any of that kind of growth. It's all just academic. And sometimes I wonder if we are kind of shortchanging teachers because there's a lot of emotional energy that comes in to just getting kids to change their approach to being at school. And I feel like that is something. And I don't feel like we want to give that a number, but yet I feel like it's almost as important. I would say it's more important, Zach. I mean, what you're describing right there, that's that's why we got into the profession, most of us, is because we wanted to really connect with students and our colleagues and, and change lives and get, get kids to where they wanted to be. But as long as we are still, you know, kind of talking about a system where we're evaluated in general, I think that it's going to be a problem for our profession. I agree with Don. We need to pay teachers more. And we also need to change the mindset that we should be evaluated externally. Don, I'd love Love the cop analogy, the police officer analogy. I think that we are affecting lives at the same level as doctors, and I'd love to see the system redesigned so that teachers are paid more and that we can change that societal mentality and teachers are the experts and they're left to do their things. I think families need to be partners. I definitely agree with that, but I think just changing that mindset and relying on the expertise of teachers and just assuming that they care there's so many attacks on educators. I think that probably because most of us went through an education system where sometimes our teachers weren't so great, it is vastly different now as far as educators. If you guys take a look at your social studies departments, you probably don't see too many of the teachers who just sit back and put their feet up anymore. I, I really do think our profession is outgrown the stereotypes that most of us had at least one experience with when we went through. Speak for yourself, Amanda. I got into this for the money. Stop. <laughs> well, but it's I, I do want I do want to elaborate on my cop analogy though. Here's the thing with police officers. They get everything gets thrown at them. Mental health problems, deal with the police. Crazy person on the street, homelessness, family issues, domestic violence, your job, police, social protest movements, good luck, police. They get thrown everything at them and they're not prepared for it. But they have to deal with it because that's their role. Schools or teachers are the same way. We're dealing with the exact same things. Mental health, domestic abuse, drug abuse, all these things get thrown to, at our feet. So we're both the same in that we're dealing with a whole bunch of things that we're not really supposed to be dealing with. We're supposed to be teaching kids. They're supposed to be enforcing laws, but they get dealt with all society's ills. And so do we. So that's the, and they're also compensated at a similar rate. I prefer my job over that job, but that's the way I think they're similar. 
That's a, that's a pretty good analogy, Don. You're right. This is what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And yet this is what's brought to my plate every day. And it's just very different. That's a really good point. You know, one of the things I was thinking about is every once in a while, I'll have high school kids that come by to visit and they'll have Don as a teacher and they'll tell me how much they love him and how, how much they, they uh, enjoy the class. And it makes me think about, you know, everybody in the world can point to a teacher that they really enjoyed having or that maybe made a difference in their life. But they usually, you know, will describe that teacher with, they made me feel this, or they did this that was awesome. And usually almost never do they talk about like the teacher's formative assessment models or, you know, the introductory video they showed to, to gain their attention. It was always how the teacher made them feel. Isn't that part of the problem? We talk about great teachers in terms of how they made us feel, but yet we want to evaluate teachers based upon, I guess, something that happens in the classroom. And I feel like there's a mismatch there though, right? The teachers we enjoyed being around Nobody seems to care about what it was they were doing in their class. This is a hard one for me because there's some teachers I know that are uh, not teaching anything, like they're not covering any subject matter, but they make teachers, the kids feel really good. And I don't know if that's the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world, but I, uh, I'm very torn on this one. Right now, where our society is at, I'm falling on connecting with kids and helping them with their social emotional growth and it doesn't even have to be a program. It can just be giving them their full, your full attention as an adult, listening to them, talking with them. I just think that that is worth so much more, especially right now. So, I mean, I just think more and more we have a, the right adults in the profession to keep them here. We definitely need to redesign the system. Everybody points to the big blob that is public education. And then they usually just say it's bad or it's got to change. we got to do something. And so I guess my just sort of final questions then are just sort of around, can you offer, can either of you offer any models for teacher evaluation that you think would be more effective than what we're currently doing? National board certification for everyone. It's a wonderful process. It's exhaustive, but give people money. They'll do it. They'll do a good job. Frees up time for administrators, frees up time for uh, the, uh, all the paperwork at HR. If you go through the process, you get there, maybe give you a higher pay because you've done it, but it's a wonderful process that does a really good, thorough job of evaluation. And you're saying with that process, you have to obviously meet their requirements. And then is it every couple of years you have to continue to demonstrate your abilities? Used to be every 10 years. Now it's every five years, but you submit evidence, you document all the things you're doing and all the things you have done. And um, as a result of that, you can achieve it or not. Some, a lot of people put in time and energy in and don't get it. I got it, it. I recertified. And it's a really, they have a process that works. And that would be a huge time saver if that was taken out of the hands of local administrators. So you can't like gain the system very easily, you're saying? No, I figure it took me probably 100 hours to do the initial and 50 hours to recertify. But okay. it, was, it was time well spent in that I really learned a lot and I felt better about what I was doing. And the compensation is not adequate for the job, but it is enough that it's worth my time. Amanda, any thoughts? Yeah, I would you know, redesign the system to include much more time for professional collaboration. I gave the example of the um, collaborative inquiry groups. I guess I would say teachers working together in regular sustainable periods of time to identify things that they're interested in and then just describing their journey about what they learned and how it affected them and students and then I would also put in this part I think we kind of could get from medicine which is taking a look at a critical problem as a group of professionals and how do we fix this right now so instructional rounds is something that's been talked about before but the redesign in the system has to happen because we just don't have the time built in Lake Orion used to have kind of the time built in with 90 minutes of prep for all of us and a Wednesday morning where we could all get together and collaborate. That's not a guarantee for teachers. I think in order for us to work in that really short cycle that Don described of feedback and getting information on what growth we were making in real time, teachers need more time. They need to feel valued as professionals. Yes, paid more, but then also free to not be evaluated, but exploring problems of practice that are interesting to them and then as professionals getting together on those really tough cases that needed immediate help. There's a lot of different research on the collective efficacy that teachers feel being much more effective in order to um, change their practice and their perception of their job and their effectiveness. 
And I think coming together as educators in order to grow collective efficacy is where we need to go instead of an external evaluation system. So ultimately, you're saying some sort of a system where peers are working together and maybe even evaluating each other or giving each other some sort of feedback and and trying to grow together. I would say feedback and coaching, the word evaluation needs to come out. We're professionals. Let's start treating each other like that. Okay. Well, then the only other things I had kind of written down were like, do you think it would make a difference if you just had a full-time administrator or administrators that are just devoted to evaluation in general? What I studied for my dissertation was communities of practice and administrators really are never seen as a level of community that teachers allow to give feedback that changes their practice as much as peers or as much as an outside pursued area of interest like Don's talking about national board. So I think that the word, what you're describing still has evaluation in it. And uh, I think that that's going to be problematic. There was a a place called High Tech High. It's out in San Diego. And they're an interesting school that's really trying to kind of break the model of how schools should run and stuff like that. And they do a lot of project-based learning. One of the things, though, that I heard about this place, which I thought was interesting, was that all of their teachers are on one-year contracts. The teachers are evaluated based upon the work and projects that their kids produce over the course of that year. Now, I don't understand exactly the nitty gritty of how exactly that works. But in general, I thought that was sort of an interesting concept and an interesting way to maybe judge teachers. What do you guys think about that one? You got to be figuring on a pretty strong group, a pretty small group of kids, you can work intimately with that. You're not doing that with 480 kids a year like I am. I would say that one of my partners in design education group has taken several teams of teachers out to that school and is working with something called um, the Buck Institute to implement project-based learning. And at a high school level, they've taken about 120 students and put them in a cohort called Project Next, and they're doing that. Now, they have not changed the evaluation system. I think that what you're describing, Zach, has a lot of possibilities and is much more authentic. I don't know about the one-year contract because I want everyone to feel secure. I'm sorry. I just want like happiness for everyone. You know, I I think that what you're describing is probably much more of a system that we could move towards. One of the things in the article they mentioned was just with the pandemic over the last two years, things like evaluation are just not really being thought or talked a lot about in schools as we're just trying to get through the day-to-day slog of making sure there's enough people in classrooms to, to watch kids and making sure that something like education is going on. Amanda, can you talk a little bit about like Have you had a lot of discussions about teacher evaluation over the last couple of years, or is most of your time and everybody that you're working with just kind of sucked up by trying to just get schools to be open every day? You know, I have an interesting dual role right now. So in my role as an administrator, um, no, we are purposefully trying to make sure that this is not an extra thing that teachers have to worry about. Our profession is going through something I don't think any of us have seen before as far as exhaustion and burnout. And we want evaluation to not add to that that pile. Now, as an educational consultant, we are seeing a shift in um, administrators contacting us to help us lead that process of evaluation in a more coaching way. So not only do the leaders want coaching, they want us to come in and provide professional development to the staff and then also lead the reflective and coaching pieces along the way. So I'm not sure if there's going to be more of a shift to that outsourcing but I definitely think that it is one approach that we're starting to see and be asked to provide. If people wanted to contact you, you you said that you have your own consulting group called Creative Design Education Group. If people wanted to contact you, how could they contact you? And what would the initial process be like? Am I just allowed to kind of dump all my problems onto you? And can you solve them all for me? Or, you know, what would happen there? Yeah, I mean, thanks for asking, Zach. So Design Education Group, .net, that's our um, website. And we're just a group of six you know, administrators who, yes, that is literally what we're doing, Zach, is administrators too are experiencing just a level of exhaustion and frustration in their careers that they've been contacting us. It, we could call it dumping their problems. That's not really how we view it. I mean, <laughs> sorry, we're just like, you know, yeah, we do just listen to what they're dealing with and design solutions with them that we think will help them with their immediate and long-term you know, professional goals. And it's really designing a tailored and individualized solution for everyone who comes to us with different things that they're going through right now. 
Are you finding more people calling now with the same problems or is everybody's problem a little different from each other? They're different. You know, some are really looking at wanting professional divide, professional development provided in a skill area like reading. One of my colleagues has been doing a great job at the middle school level in reading intervention and literacy. And so, you know, that's a specific area that we've been called on. And, the, and the, I would say the other area is for social emotional learning. Um, the CASEL framework that's out right now, a lot of school districts are taking a look at putting those strategies from the playbook in. And so they're asking for us to come in and the administrators want to be part of the learning. So they ask us to facilitate it so that they can be part of it and go through that with their staff. And uh, that, that social emotional piece is something that we're starting to see more of. Don, uh, any other questions that you have or any other comments you'd like to make? I think once again, we've solved the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, down the road, uh, any predictions from either of you about how this all plays out? Do you think five years from now? I mean, people seemed in the article very uncertain if anything was actually going to change, even though nobody from both parties seems to think this system works, but there also seemed to be very little appetite for change. You think five years from now, we're still just running the same teacher effectiveness rating system? Something similar to it where people can kind of get their, have, uh, as Amanda illustrated, the, the security and feelings that they can keep having their job at the same time as some semblance of uh, evaluation that weeds out the very worst teachers and keeps the rest engaged. I'm sure Don is correct, but... My whole part really wants to just see the whole system dismantled, <laughs> start placing value on other things and uh, elevate the level of the profession overall and still really affect students' lives positively. Well, we've only got about two and a half years less of, of uh, Don's magic before I think he's going to um, go find another king to work for. So uh, we'll have to see if he uh, gets to be judged by something else. <laughs> Uh, well, Don, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Don, I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely. Thanks, thank you very much. Bye-bye.